excuse me, but for today is Romans history. Yes, yes it is. It's also future or something. So now I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself a little bit this morning as we open up. Uh, not like go out on a date with myself, but like tell you how old I am. Um, I'm my own grandpa. No, that's not it. Anybody remember the six million dollar man? Huh? Yeah. It, it's not me, right? That for those of you that don't know, it was a TV show in the '70s based on a set of books about a man named Steve Austin. And no, not not Stone Cold Steve Austin. The authoritative folks at Wikipedia, which Don, you know, commended to us Wednesday night, describe the $6 million man this way. When NASA astronaut Steve Austin is severely injured in a crash of an experimental lifting body aircraft, he is rebuilt in an operation that costs $6 million, which, by the way, wouldn't get you a bad hip replacement today, but anyway. Um, His right arm, both legs and the left eye are replaced with bionic implants that enhance his strength, speed, and vision far above human norms. He can run at speeds of 60 miles an hour, and his eye, his bionic eye, has a 20 to 1 zoom lens and infrared capabilities, while his bionic limbs all have the equivalent power of a bulldozer. He uses his enhanced abilities to work for the Office of Scientific Intelligence as a secret agent. And he was played by Lee Majors. And y'all don't know who Lee Majors is, but Lee Majors was married to Farrah Fawcett. So here he is, he's the $6 million man, he's married to Farrah Fawcett. I mean, come on. And some of you are going, who's Farrah Fawcett? Trust me, it was something. (laughs) I barely remember the show, but I do remember it. I have some memories of being fascinated about this bionic man and all that he could do. And I guess, truthfully, if I'm honest, I've always had a love for things in the superhero realm. Batman, Superman, which Batman's not really superhuman, but um, I've I've always been, um, I've always enjoyed comic bookish, heroish things. People from Earth and other planets who could do more than us normal people. And unless I'm missing something, it seems like the whole world has a similar fascination. There have been, in 10 years, 15 movies in the last 10 years that have been made in what they call the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And what that means is these movies are based on comic books from Marvel Comics. Iron Man, Hulk, Captain America, Thor. 15 movies in the last 10 years. Any guess, which I'm not going to ask you to guess... They've made a lot of money. $12 billion in worldwide ticket sales. That's not merchandising. That's just tickets to these movies. $12 billion in 10 years over 15 films. So it seems like a lot of people are fascinated with superhumans, superheroes. And why? I think, at least, it's partly because we want to believe that there's more possible than what, the, than what we're used to. There's more possible than what we feel like we are limited to. We all kind of wish that we, like the bionic man, could run at 60 miles an hour 
We wish our eye had a 20 to 1 zoom infrared lens that we... And we love the ethos, the pathos, the logos of the struggle between good and evil. And especially partial to good triumphing over evil. It's, It's built into us, I think. We all kind of wish we could see consistent victories of good in the world. But do we? We wish we could. We wish we could ultimately see that final triumph of good over evil, doing away with evil and the exaltation of good before our very human eyes. We all have that longing. It's almost like we were made to have that longing, isn't it? And what was it C.S. Lewis said about a longing we have? He said, if, we, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Amen. I say, yes and amen, I am created for another world. But what if? What if it's not just about another world? What if we are possibly more than we understand? What if we are capable of more than we know in this world? Could it be? Is it possible? Let's explore it. We're going to read Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 21 today. And I promised you all last week that I was going to finish this chapter today. We, we looked at verse 9 last week. And I told you we were going to do 10 through 21 this week. And we're going to. So there, we're going to. So if you would stand as we read the Scripture together, we stand out of reverence. Paul told Timothy to give attention to the public reading of the Scripture. We've already done that once this morning. We're going to do it again now. That's why we stand as a corporate body to receive the Word of God for the people of God. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the feast that is set before us today. Give us hungry hearts to partake of what You've prepared for us. May Your Holy Spirit apply it to our lives in such a way that the world sees our good deeds and gives You glory. Holy Spirit, teach us, instruct us, inspire us, 
empower us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, of course, one of the things that we have consistently done, one of the things that we always want to do with the Scripture is we want to establish the context of what we're talking about. We spent 20 months in Romans 1 through 11, Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11, establishing doctrine. For what purpose? For the purpose of seeing it worked out in our lives. The Holy Spirit spent 11 chapters teaching us about sanctification, expiation, propitiation, all those things, all the Asian station stuff, so that we might know what has been done for us so that we can know what we should be doing. This is about doing. Okay? If you just have a head full of doctrine, even if you just have a heart full of love for Jesus, it's not enough. If it doesn't translate into your everyday life, if it doesn't translate into your hands, into your eyes, into your mouth, into your feet, into your work, into your home, doctrine really is worthless. And I say that with fear and trembling. If it doesn't work itself out into your life, it's probably not true doctrine. We establish doctrine so that we might live forth with good deeds. Now, today, we're building off of last week in particular. Last week was uh, verse 9 where it said... Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to that which is good. And if you'll remember last week, we established that the main command was let love be genuine. And everything that followed that are participles that are saying how to do that. So we are still in the context of showing what loving genuinely looks like. So last week we said let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, Holding fast to what is good is how the literal translation works. So how do I let love be genuine? By abhorring what is evil, by holding fast to what is good. And now what we're doing in this passage today is we're going to continue to see things that we're supposed to be doing to show our genuine love. Okay, And that's very important because this is about love. And love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion only. Love is a... DC Talk is a... Verb, right? It's about what you do. Yeah, Melek got that. He's, he's got that in his head now. He's thinking about it. He's seeing the video and everything. He knows what's going on. So love is a verb. So how do we love? What we're going to look at today through this passage is the living out, the nuts and bolts of the grace gifts that we mentioned back earlier in chapter 12. And what's funny is if you laid... The grace gifts passage out over this passage, it almost lines up. This gift, this is how you do it. This gift, this is how you do it. This gift. So these are really explanations of what those grace gifts look like so that we can let love be genuine. Again, we don't have gifts for ourselves, right? My gift, my gift. Look at my gift. Look what gift I've got. I've got this gift. I took this survey and found out that I had this gift. Wrong. I'm serving, loving, treasuring people we see your gift in action. That's what we're looking for. And that's what this passage today helps us to see what it looks like. This is putting the muscle, the sinew and the skin on the skeleton of the gifts that were mentioned earlier in Romans 12. 
So we're building a complete body. It's like, a, it's like we're a body or something, right? So what we're going to do is I have... <laughs> there's probably a lot of different ways you could break these commands down. I've got 18 of them out of what we read today. You could probably get 20. You could probably shorten a couple and make it 16 or something. We're going to go through 18 commands. Okay? I told you also when we came out of chapter 11 into chapter 12 that a whole lot of what we're going to be talking about is simply application. Not a whole lot of, you know, this means this and this means this. These are application points. So today you've got 18 application points. And you better memorize them all because there's going to be a quiz next week. I'm just kidding. You don't have to memorize them all. They're written down for you in the book. So what we're going to do is go through these 18 commands and then we're going to have some observations at the end, short observations after we go through them so you know that the, the, the course that we're charting here. So the first command that we have in our list today is love one another with brotherly affection. Now again, verse 9 said, let love be genuine. Is that not enough? No. One of the ways that we let love be genuine is loving one another with brotherly Affection. Now remember last week we talked about four words for the word love, four Greek words, right? Eros, phila, storge, agape. Now verse 9, let love be genuine, was agape. Here in verse 10, you've got two words. You've got love one another and you've got brotherly affection. This first love, love one another, is philo storgosthes. So you've got phila love and you've got storge love together. Okay? And that's the living out of brotherly love. Now, the second part, love one another with brotherly affection. Anybody ever been to see the Liberty Bell? Huh? I know you guys went, right? And what'd you see? Where'd you go to see that? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Okay? That's exactly the word here for brotherly affection. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So you've got love one another with brotherly affection here. So you've got Philostorgostus with Philadelphia. Oh, why, why? Why say let love be genuine and then say love one another with brotherly affection? Let me tell you why. Remember last week I said you've got to love me, you don't have a choice? Not only do you have to love me, you've got to like me too. I didn't say last week you didn't have to like me. I said you don't have a choice but to love me. And you don't have a choice but to like me. Not just that, you're supposed to love me with brotherly affection. Now let me, get, let, me, let me start from the beginning here in verse 10 and say this is a whole lot about what's inside of us. Because I can act like I love somebody, but if I don't feel true brotherly affection for them, I'm not keeping this command. Now did you hear what I just said? This is about how you feel. This is about emotions. This is about being changed from the inside out. Not just walking in here Sunday after Sunday and acting like you love people. This is not about your outward works only. We're going to talk about some outward works, but this is about inside here. Genuinely caring about each other with brotherly affection. These are my Brothers, these are my sisters and I love them deeply. That's why church is so beautiful. 
It's not because we've got the right rules and the right regulations and that we have dinner every Sunday. That's a good thing. But why do we have dinner every Sunday? Because we like to be together. You're like, God, this is such a hassle. And it's loud in that room and it's hot in the kitchen. Love one another with brotherly affection. I get to be with my brothers today. We say Sunday after Sunday, especially waking Asa up, I'm like, we get to go meet with the church today. I don't want to. I'm like, no, anyway, I said we get to go meet with the church today. Love one another with brotherly affection. This is genuinely caring for each other. Feel for each other genuine, deep, brotherly love from inside of you. That's what this first command is. How you doing? How are you feeling this morning? How are you doing with that? Do you, do you love these people? Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. That's the first one. And boy, it starts out pretty bang, bang, doesn't it? The second one builds on that. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know what honor is? <laughs> it's Memorial Day, right? We honor our fallen soldiers on Memorial Day. How do we honor them? Flowers on graves. We remember them. We hold them in high esteem. To think that somebody would lay down their life for me on a battlefield somewhere so that I could be free. Wow. I feel honor for that person. And I should show that. I should give that honor. Honor is affixing a price or value to something. Or it's also to understand someone's rank or place. Have any former military people in here? I know at least Don. Anybody else? Steve? Anybody else? Okay. What did you do when a higher ranking officer came in the room? Whatever he wanted to do. You salute, you stand at attention, at ease, soldier. Because you recognize his rank. Now listen, keep that in mind because here it's saying to outdo one another in showing honor. Showing honor to who? One another. Each other. I recognize your rank. And what that implies is I recognize that your rank is above mine. Voluntarily. Jesus said, whoever wants to be great in my kingdom must be the servant of all. Imagine Jesus on His hands and knees with a towel wrapped around His waist, washing those disciples' dirty feet. That's how you outdo one another in showing honor. You recognize you rank above me. And I have placed a very high price on you. I have assigned a very high value to you as a person. Now, can you imagine being part of a group of people whose goal, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was to outdo one another in showing honor? Man, oh man. That's almost biblical, y'all. Seriously. And I'm not just talking about holding the door open. That's, that's fine. That's good. But I'm talking about, I want to serve you more than you're serving me. I value you more than I value myself. 
How you doing? Outdo one another in showing honor. That's two. We're too deep. How you doing? Verse 11. Do not be slothful. Now, what, what I've done here is I've put, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord as one command. Okay? Again, you could break those out. All of these could be individual messages, by the way. We could do that. We're not going to. I fought the temptation. So I, I've combined a chapter, uh, verse 11 into one command. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord because I think it's the same thought pattern. Okay? Let, let's explore that. Do not be slothful. What's it mean to be slothful? Lazy. The Bible has a lot of bad things to say about slothful people. Okay? Read the book of Proverbs. The slothful man turns on his bed like a hinge, it says. The slothful man says, there's a line in the streets, I better not leave my house. It's cloudy today, I better not go to church, it might rain. Don't be slothful in zeal. What is zeal? Zeal is an excitement. Zealous is the word that we would use. Be zealous. Care deeply and passionately about something. I've got zeal. What was it they said about Jesus? Zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal. What are you zealous for? A lot of people are zealous about superhero movies, aren't they? $12 billion worth of zeal over the last 10 years. But don't be slothful in your zeal, which means don't be lazy, be zealous. Then it says to be fervent in spirit. That literally means to boil in the spirit. Be fervent, boil, bubble. And it's a picture of movement, excitement, action, heat, passion, just bubbling up to do what? To serve the Lord. Don't be slothful in your zeal. You should be zealous for serving the Lord. Be bubbling, boiling in the Spirit, just constant action, blah, 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 blah to serve the Lord. How do we serve the Lord? Well, this is one way we serve the Lord. Loving each other, brotherly affection, outdoing one another, and showing honor. We look at the commands of God and the Word of God and we do those things. We make disciples. We seek to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Zealously. Fervently. Are you fervent in your service to God? Or is it a bore? Or is it just, oh, you know, we got to go to church. Or, oh, it's visitation night. We don't have visitation night. But I'm just saying, if there are those things... Oh, I've got to help with lunch today. Oh, we've got to clean up. Oh, we've got to vacuum. What about, man, I get to outdo my brothers today and show them honor. I'm going to vacuum the whole church, the whole building. Don't walk around vacuuming people. <laughs> the church is the people, right? That's the old thing. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Over there you see the people. Wrong! That's wrong. So wrong. Here's the church. Here's the church. The building has a steeple. So we serve the Lord zealously, fervently. It's a command. It's not an option. Do this. Be this. Feel this. 
boil in the Spirit as you serve the Lord. Next one, number four, is rejoice in hope. Hmm. Now, I could have combined verse 12 into one too, but I didn't. Again, there's a lot of different ways to do this. Rejoice in hope. Now, what is hope? Man, I sure hope we have some pizza at lunch today. I don't know what's back there. That's not hope. That's wishful thinking. I do know we're going to eat, so I do have hope that there's lunch back there. Right? Let me talk to you about hope for a second. Hebrews 6.19 We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And it goes on to say where Jesus is. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is an anchor for the soul. Biblical hope is as sure as the air that you're breathing. The chair underneath your bottom. The siren that's going off right now. I planned that. (laughs) Yeah, we don't hope that something happens. We rejoice in an anchor for our souls that keeps us grounded, that keeps us... So that in whatever situation that we're in, we sang it in that last song, it's there, there in the newborn cry. It's there in the weeping by the graveside, the wedding day, the everyday in the mundane. We have a hope that is an anchor for our souls. And what are we supposed to do with that hope? We rejoice in that hope. What about when things are bad? We rejoice in hope that the best for the Christian is always up ahead. Again, that's C.S. Lewis as well. We rejoice. What did Paul tell the Philippians? Rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. To joy over and over again. And why do we rejoice? Because we've got hope. Listen to me. In this past year where I've been working with Hamlet up here at Life Strategies in therapy... I see so many people who have zero hope. They got no hope. And they want me to teach them breathing techniques to help them. I would much rather give somebody hope. And as Christians, as believers, we're commanded not only to have hope, to know that hope, but to rejoice in that hope. What about when things are good? We rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. The next one is be patient in tribulation. And I think it's very, very attached to rejoicing in hope. Be patient in tribulation. It's akin to rejoicing in hope. Because we rejoice in hope when we're in tribulation. And how do we rejoice in hope when we're in tribulation? We are patient in tribulation. What does patient mean? Hurry up and tell me, right? <laughs> to be patient is to be able to wait for something. To be able to say, it's all right. I can wait. I can bear this. How many times have you said, I just can't wait till, so whatever, Christmas. I just can't wait. Lily's birthday is tomorrow. Just can't wait, right? We're not real good at patience. We want faster internet speed so that we don't have to wait 0.04 seconds for the screen to pop up after we hit the button. Be patient. Not just patient, but be, be patient in tribulation. 
What's tribulation? Tribulation is when you're having a bad time, a hard time. Things aren't going your way. You're being tested. You're being tried. And it says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Listen to me. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Everybody in here. I don't care where you are, who you are, what age you are. Life is hard. Plain and simple. Now, we live in America. We live in an almost 300-year-old experiment that is an anomaly in human history. Unprecedented prosperity, unprecedented peace. Most people don't live in that. Go all over the world and see people who don't have the prosperity and the peace that we have in America. Listen to me. It's coming. This experiment one day will fall apart. I wonder if we're seeing it in front of our eyes today. When it falls apart, when tribulation comes to American Christianity, be patient. But we cry out for deliverance and that's not wrong. But we are to be patient in tribulation. Our brothers and sisters for thousands of years have known the reality of suffering, dying, losing because they are followers of Jesus. It's happening today. And we must be prepared to do the same. Tribulation is coming. You say, are you talking about the great tribulation? No, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about life being hard and us suffering tribulation because we're Christians. Listen to me, you younger folks especially, it's coming. You will not, unless you die in an untimely death, which is possible, unless Jesus comes back, you will see tribulation for your faith. I promise you. We're already seeing it. When it comes, be patient. Be patient in tribulation, which means while you're in it, don't ask to get out of it. Be patient in the midst of it. And that's for all of us. Whatever tribulation you're going through now, whether it's health, whether it's emotional, whether it's familial, whether it's car problems, be patient. Christian people are patient in the midst of tribulation. And then what ties that all together is be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now, first of all, what this does not mean is that you have to always be praying all the time. There's also the passage in 1 Thessalonians that says to pray without ceasing. That does not mean if you take a breath or think something different than a prayer, you're wrong. That's not what this means. It's saying that the pattern, the consistent, constant pattern of our lives should be one of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is us talking to God, saying, God, what's going on? What should I do here? What does your word say? What do your people need right now? God, give me insight. God, give me power. God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And the constant pattern of our lives is going to God for direction, for power, to glorify Him, to worship Him. Be constant in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but conviction alert... I don't know how I'm doing with that. Do we pray because we have to? Again, there's that grumbling. Got to pray. I got to leave the house at 6 a.m. I guess that means I got to get up at 5 so I can pray. That's not the attitude here. The attitude is, oh God, I need you. 
I'm coming to you because I need you. Prayer is me pouring my heart out before you and you shaping and changing me as I seek your will and as I ask things and you say no, I learn that that's not your will in this chance. We pray for grace and joy and these tags that we're trying to get into there, not we, I guess Bob's and Mary are part of that. And we are collectively, but we weren't there. They're trying to get these tags into China. So we pray. I can't affect the customs people, but God can. Right? So we pray. In our need, in our tribulation, as we have the hope in the midst of it all, we are constant in prayer. Command. Be constant in prayer. And I'm I'm telling you, I'm standing here convicted. I was convicted preparing this. I just am not constant in prayer. I'm not. And this command says be constant in prayer. A prayerless Christian is not only a powerless Christian, a prayerless Christian is a disobedient Christian. Can you be a disobedient Christian? Yes. Living testimony. Be constant in prayer. I won't beat that horse too much. Prayer should be our lifestyle. It should be our common practice. How do we pray? The Bible's full of good prayers to pray. You want to know how to pray? Pray the prayers of the Bible. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray the prayers of Paul. Go back to the Old Testament and pray some of those prayers. Pray the Psalms. Plenty of ways to pray. Move on. Sorry. I kind of lingered there longer than I should have. This is number seven. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Who are the saints? They're not New Orleans, not the football team. We're not talking about Drew Brees, Andrew Peterson. Not Andrew Peterson. (laughs) He's a singer, y'all. Adrian Peterson. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Yeah, not those guys. Contribute to the needs of the saints. The saints are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, should we contribute to everybody's needs? Sure we should. Galatians 6.10 So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We should help everybody that we can. That's what it says. Let's do good to everyone. But I love the especially there. Romans 12, it's saying contribute to the needs of the saints. Galatians, it says especially to the needs of the saints, basically. So we do good. We help everybody. But here especially those of the household of the faith, and not just those who go to church with us. Now, this should be our first stop. If there's people in this group of people that have a need, we should meet it. Acts, right? They, they brought their money, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as everyone had need. And it says there was not a poor person among them. Well, oh. <laughs> how you doing? Contribute to the needs of the saints. But not just the people that go to church with us, but all over the world. Look at the breadth of that statement. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And praise God, we are considered saints because of what Jesus has done for us. So we contribute, and that means financially, I think primarily, not only, but primarily. Saints have needs, we meet those needs as we contribute to them. Contribute to the needs of the saints. The next one is... Are you ready? Seek to show 
hospitality. <laughs> Some of you ladies are sitting there going, oh, geez. I haven't dusted in two months. I don't want anybody coming to my house. Or maybe that's just us. <laughs> don't say anything to my wife, all right? Hospitality is dealing specifically with having people in your home. That's exactly, no, not exactly, that's majoritively, if that's a word, what that's referring to. Having people in your homes. Come into my home, be a part of our home, be a part of our lives. Dwell with us, eat with us, spend some time with us, live with us maybe. But it's not just about a soup and sandwich social. In this day and age, there were people who were fleeing for their lives from the authorities. And to show hospitality is to bring them into your home, which is to invite danger into your home. Think Corey Tinboom, right? Think Nazis seeking Jews and you're hiding them in your home. Now listen, please listen. I'm, I'm going to kick you in the teeth for just a second, okay? We gripe and groan about having people in our homes to come over for a meal. What if they were running for their lives? Would we welcome them in our homes then? Now, that's hospitality, but we're not just supposed to show hospitality. We are to seek to show hospitality. I'm going to make it my aim. I'm going to make it my goal to have people in my home and to make them feel welcome and to help them Enjoy their time while they're there as we spend that time together. I'm not just supposed to show it. I'm supposed to seek to show it. I'm supposed to plan my life around having you yahoos in my home. Seriously. That's what he's saying. He didn't say yahoo. That's the Jason translation. King Jason, by the way. (laughs) Seek to show hospitality. At least hosting people in your home. At least from time to time, every now and then. Well, nobody wants to come to Helen. Well, that's, I'm supposed to seek to show hospitality. Y'all can come to Helen if you want to, okay? You're welcome. Did you hear what I just said? You're welcome at my home in Helen, West Virginia. I'll be on Tuesday. Okay, come on down Tuesday. I won't be there. My <laughs> wife will be there. <laughs> seek to show hospitality. That sounds a whole lot like trying to outdo one another in honor, right? Something I'm trying to do. I'm being fervently passionate about this as well. Seek to show hospitality. Now, you're like, gee, Louise. Now, that's hard. How about this one? Number 9, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, listen. Hold on just a second. We've been talking about the brothers so far. And we're thinking, "Ah, I could probably do that. Now we're moving out of the brotherly realm and we're moving into those people who are hostile toward us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now this is not anywhere near just bearing up while you're being unfairly treated. It's not anywhere near that. Be patient in tribulation was, okay, I'm going I'm to bear up underneath that. This is light years beyond that. 
This is literally saying that we are supposed to bless our persecutors. Bless them. Do you know what the word bless means? Let me tell you. Eulageo. Bless, praise, praise, celebrate with praises. To invoke blessings, to consecrate a thing with solemn prayers, to ask God's blessing on a thing, to pray God to bless it to one's use. Pronounce a consecratory, which is a great word, blessing on of God to cause to prosper, to make happy, to bestow blessings on, favored of God and blessed. You got somebody that's persecuting you? Eulogize them. Bless them. Ask God to pour His favor upon them. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? Thank you for persecuting me. God bless you. Are you kidding me? We need not look any further than the cross of Christ to see what this looks like. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. So you want to be like Jesus? You bless those who persecute you. Now, let me be real clear here for a second. Does that mean that we're supposed to bless people who are doing immoral things to us? We're supposed to approve of it? No, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to prove of it. Approve of it. This is about a heart attitude within ourselves that does not wish ill on those who are mistreating us. <laughs> now, does that mean we should never stand up against evil? Absolutely not. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who opposed Hitler to the point of laying his life down, by the way. Ephesians 5, 7-11, Therefore do not become partners with them, people doing immoral acts. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We don't say, oh, it's okay that you're sinning, it's okay that you're mistreating me. We expose the bad, we expose the evil, we call evil evil, we call bad bad, but we do not wish ill on the person in our hearts. We bless them. God, please change their hearts. God, please bless them with repentance. Is that your attitude towards your persecutors? Because in Romans 12, you are commanded to bless those who persecute you. Tenth one. Nope. I'm in the wrong one, aren't I? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now I believe there's a connection to the previous verse, by the way, the previous command. This would include our persecutors. But there is a time to not rejoice with those who are doing evil. I get that. I established that before. But we are not those who celebrate when bad things happen to those we consider bad. Ha, 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 ha. Something bad happened to you. One day we will praise God in His holiness as He pours out His wrath on sin and sinners. But we rejoice that God's holiness is vindicated, not that bad things are happening to bad people. Listen to me. This verse means this. Christians care. Christians care about good people. Christians care about bad people. 
And when people rejoice, we feel that joy with them. When people weep, we weep with them. There's a little thing called presence ministry. Not T, but C-E. And it means sometimes you just need to be there with somebody. Not tell them it's going to be okay. Sit down, shut up, and weep with those who weep. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's what this is talking about. I'm so sorry you're upset. I'm so sorry. Someone passed away. I'm so sorry you lost your job. I'm so sorry. And we just weep with them. That's what Christians do. Number 11, live in harmony with one another. (laughs) That's pretty straightforward. But note the one another here. We're back into the brotherly realm. This is about believers and their life together, which is a great Dietrich Bonhoeffer book, by the way, Life Together. I love the concept of harmony here, which is the sounding together of different notes to produce a pleasing sound. That's how we're to live together as believers, sounding different notes, doing different things that go together to produce something beautiful. This really images forth how the gifts are to be used, how they're to work. One body, many parts, one purpose. People doing different things for one purpose to the glory of God live in harmony with one another so that when somebody's doing something different than you, you don't say, well, you shouldn't do that. You say, oh, well, I never thought of that. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty is the next one, but associate with the lowly. Haughty we looked at last week. Haughty means proud, arrogant, looking down your nose at people. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Who are the lowly? It's the people who aren't in power, the people who don't have all the money, people who don't have it all together, people who smell bad. People who are bald. doesn't make me lowly. Looking for the people who are persecuted. Looking for the people who are disadvantaged. Looking for the people who need help and associating ourselves with them. Not, I don't get around people that smell bad. I don't get around people who are a different color. I don't get around people who are homosexual. I don't get around people who've had an abortion. Associate with the lowly. Jesus Christ was a friend of sinners. He associated with the lowly. And they loved Him. And He loved them. To associate with literally means to yield oneself to. Don't be haughty. Don't think you're better than somebody else because you're not. You're a sinner. You deserve death, hell, and the grave. And so do they. So yield yourself to the lowly. Associate with the lowly. Number 13, never be wise in your own sight. How often should you be wise in your own sight? Never. Not once, not ever. Now listen. I've been to other churches... I've been with other believers who do things differently than me and too many times I'm wise in my own sight. It happens a lot for me. Not that I'm so smart, it's just that I'm arrogant and I'm proud, truthfully. And I think I'm pretty sharp sometimes. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Listen, church, don't ever do this. Don't ever be wise in your own sight, which means I've got this figured out. I'm, yeah, I'm good. You just came out of not being haughty, associating with the, lonely, the lowly. Only the lonely. Um, never be wise in your own sight. Don't think you're smarter than you really are. Don't think that you're wiser than somebody else. Ever. Never. Christians don't do that. And if you do, you need to confess it and repent of it. Number 14. We're getting closer and closer to 18, okay? I'm, I'm trying to hurry. Ooh-wee, boy. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And I just combined that into one. <laughs> Somebody does evil to you, never repay anyone, brother, non-brother, evil for evil. Tit for tat, this for that. You smack me, I smack you. You hurt my feelings, wife. I hurt your feelings, husband. Repay no one evil for evil. But instead, don't do that, but give thought to do what is honorable. There's that word again. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So if someone wrongs me, someone's evil, I don't do evil to them, I show them honor. You're more important than I am. I esteem you highly enough to not repay evil for evil. I don't know about y'all, but this is just not very good. Fifteen, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. (laughs) There are some people you're not going to live in peace with. It's going to happen. But so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Jesus said, if you're at the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go make things right with your brother. Then, after you've made things right with your brother, you come back and you offer your offering. Now, think about what I just said. If you're at the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, not you have something against your brother, you realize, man, my brother's upset. Well, whoever it is, man, Matthew is upset with me. I pulled his hair the other day because I'm jealous of it. All right? This hair thing's really not a big deal to me. It's just easy, okay? I'm at the altar. I realize Matthew's upset with me. I stop what I'm doing. I go back and I try to live at peace with Matthew. And he's like, I'm never going to forgive you. Baldy. And I'm like, you ever heard of Elisha? Watch for bears, young man. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) If possible, you live at peace with all people. You try to make things right as far as it is in your power. They're not always going to receive it. Sometimes you've got to shake the dust off your feet and walk away. But if it's in your power, you do what you can. Now, two things to note here. You do what you can. This is realism, okay? You're not always going to be able to live at peace with all people. You're just not going to. But it's also not an escape clause that you continually get, well, I just can't live at peace with that person. What have you done? Have you tried to make it right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, at peace with, not in conflict with. Some people thrive on conflict. 
Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Whew, now we're, about, we're almost done. Number 16. Beloved, never avenge your Selves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How often should you avenge yourself? Never! Never! I'm going to get him back. Dude pulled my hair. I'm going to get him. Never. N- n- never. Never avenge yourselves, but... Ho, ho, ho. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Who does vengeance belong to? God. So when you try to take vengeance, you take something that is God's and try to make it your own. That is sin. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Listen to what I'm about to say. Every wrong that has ever been committed, every sin that has ever been committed will one day be punished, but not by you. It will be punished by God. So if somebody wrongs you, you don't seek to take revenge. Christians don't take revenge. Revenge belongs to God. He will repay. And when I think that He won't and I try to take it into my own hands, that's sin on my part, that's unbelief, that's not faith, that God will do what He said He would do. Every sin will one day be punished either in eternity in hell or realized as being punished on the person of Christ who hung on the cross, who took the vengeance of God upon His Self, Himself. Propitiation, right? Every wrong will be punished one way or the other, either in Christ or in hell. So I don't have to avenge myself. Never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now that doesn't mean that we sit back smugly and say, God's going to get you. That's not how Christians think. It's just that I'm I'm not going to try to avenge myself. I trust God. And again, I'm praying for my persecutors, blessing my persecutors. Seventeen. If your enemy is hungry, number 17 in the list, not verse 17. To the contrary, actually, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. No problem. I got it. You ready? We talked about this right here last week. What does this mean? Burning coals. So I'm not supposed to seek vengeance but I'm supposed to do things that's going to heap burning coals on somebody's head. Is that a problem? Nope, it's not a problem. To the contrary. What do I do if my enemy's hungry? I feed him. My enemy, y'all. I feed him. If he's thirsty, I give him something to drink. That's my part. Okay? That's what I'm supposed to do. That's the command. And as I keep my part of the bargain and I remember that vengeance is God's and I pray that God will deliver this person from that vengeance, look back at Romans chapter 
2. You don't have to go there. I'll put it up here. 2, 4, and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Listen to what I'm about to say. Either people repent when they see your good works as they persecute you, your enemy, or they store up wrath for themselves on the final judgment. But I leave that to God. Always, burning coals, fire, means what in Scripture? Punishment. This is not, y'all might have heard somewhere, it means that their fire's out and you're putting coals on their heads so they can start to fire. It's not what it means. It is not what it means. There's no historical proof that that's what this is talking about. It's saying, you do your part. You feed him when he's hungry, give him something to drink when he's thirsty, and God will either grant him repentance or God will store up wrath, heaping burning coals on top of his head that will be realized in the final judgment. I leave that to God. I feed him when he's hungry. I give him something to drink when he's thirsty. Trust God in that. Last one, number 18, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, overcoming here does not mean that people always repent. People always see things your way. Things always turn out your way. I want to read you a story about somebody who overcame evil with good. Anybody ever heard the name Graham Staines? You may not have heard the name, but you may be familiar with this story. 1999, January 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons, Philip and Timothy, who were 10 years old and 6 years old. John Piper shared this story, by the way. This is not. Graham Staines and his two sons, Philip, age 10, and Timothy, age 6, were mobbed by radical Hindus trapped inside their vehicle in India and burned alive. The three charred bodies were recovered clinging to each other. Listen to me. Graham Staines had spent 34 years serving the people of India in the name of Jesus. 34 years. Doing good. Preaching Jesus. Loving people. Serving lepers. He left behind his widow Gladys and his daughter Esther. Gladys' response when she was asked a few days later about the martyrdom of her husband and sons was, I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave His life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. Everyone thought... Piper shares, everyone thought she would move back to Australia, but no. She said God had called them to India and she would not leave. She said, this is his wife, My husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. They burnt her husband and her two sons in a car. And she says, I'm not angry. I'm not bitter, but that's not all. They asked Esther, 
the 13-year-old daughter of Graham Staines, how she felt about the murder of her dad and her two brothers. And she said, I praise the Lord that He found my father and my brothers worthy to die for Him. Let me tell you people, that's otherworldly. That's suprahuman. That's supernatural. That's what it means to overcome evil with good. To look it in the face and say, by the grace of God, I praise God that He counted my dad and my brothers worthy to die for His name. They're still dead, people. They didn't come back to life but they overcame the evil with good. That's what we're talking about here. Five quick observations as we finish this list. Thank you all for being patient. I know it's a little longer than normal. But hey, give me a break, okay? First observation out of all these commands is that they are commands. They are demands to the Christian. They are to be done. This is not suggestions for a better life. This is not, oh, give this a shot if you get around to it. This is Christian living. These 18 commands that we looked at this morning, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. Reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first observation. Second observation. The commands directly pertain so many times to my emotions. You say, well, I can't help how I feel. Baloney. You have to control how you feel. If you don't control how you feel, nobody would be faithful to your spouse. Well, I fell in love with her. I can't help it. I need a stronger word than baloney, even if it's fried baloney, right? These are commands, and they command you to control your emotions. To love one another with brotherly affection. To outdo one another in showing honor. To esteem each other higher than yourselves. To pray for those who persecute you. This is about internal stuff here. And anything outside of those emotions is to be dealt with. Third observation. These commands are about loving God and loving people. Which, hey, wait a second. Isn't that the great command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we live these commands, that's exactly what we're doing. We're loving God. We're serving God. We're loving people. We're serving people. Now, these are commands. They pertain to our emotions. They're about loving God and loving people. Number four, these commands, these demands are impossible. You're like, well, but, but, but. I might as well go home, tell you to go home and pick your house up on your back. Pick it up. Don't stop. Keep straining. Go ahead. Pick it up. You can't do this. You say, but I'm supposed to. Give it a shot. Well, I just try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Good luck. Well, the Ten Commandments. These commands, these demands, and these verses, these 18 commands, they are impossible. 
That's point four. Last point. These commands, these demands are possible. You say, make up your mind, Baldy. I did. You can't do this, but you've got to do this. Almost calls for superhuman strength, doesn't it? It almost calls for a hero. It almost calls for a bionic man to do what I can't. Doesn't it? <laughs> we are called as Christians to be abnormal. We are called to be supranormal. We are called to be super. Natural. We are called to do what mere mortals cannot do. And it's not about a 20 to 1 zoom lens in our eye or about legs that can run 60 miles an hour, but it's about a heart that loves, a mind that thinks, hands that do, and grace that is shown in supernatural ways. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. That's why Jesus died and poured out His blood. That's why our Father in heaven, who is omnipotent, says that He wants to live His life out through us. You can't do this. <gasps> with man it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And what God commands, He empowers us to carry out. When we trust in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to do in us and through us what we can't, <gasps> man, things start happening. And that's what faith is. Eleven chapters of doctrine have set us up for doing the impossible by the power of God through the demonstration of the life of the Spirit. This is the Christian life. And it is only possible by faith in the power of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. But in faith, hallelujah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can sit in a prison shackled to a Roman guard and rejoice in hope. I can look death in the face, stand by a graveside, and understand, know, appropriate, and share the grace of God with other people. But only by the power of the Spirit of God carried out through faith in my life. You cannot try hard enough. You cannot work hard enough to get yourself here by willpower or wishful thinking or biting your jaw a little harder. It is well with my soul when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, I'll stop. You know, you know where I'm going. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, faith in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit living in and through me, that's the only way this happens. And thank God for chapters 1 through 11 that show us that happened. That's exactly what happened. We have the very Spirit of God living in us and through us. So these commands are possible. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your perfect plan. Thank you for your perfect power to show your perfect will through your perfected. We're being perfected. One day we will be perfected people. We ain't perfect, but you are making us perfect. And your strength is perfect when our strength is gone. I would much rather than boast about my weakness knowing that the power of Christ is perfected in me when I'm weak. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God, thank you for doing what we can't do. We praise you and ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Thank you for your patience, guys. I know it's hard to sit and listen to people talk. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can, please.